Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and as you can probably tell from the title of this episode, we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, critical theory. And I have Neil Shenvey with us to talk about this. Neil's an apologist with a PhD from UC Berkeley in theoretical chemistry. He is the author of Why Believe, A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. And he reads and writes widely about critical theory and the evangelical church. He currently lives in North Carolina where he homeschools his four children. Hey, Neil, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me, Doug. One of our advisory board members actually pointed me in your direction and was like, hey, this would be a great guy to talk about these issues of wokeness and critical theory and intersectionality and all these other topics that a lot of people are talking about right now. And I spent literally five minutes looking you up and I'm like, holy cow, how did I not know about Neil before? So I really am excited to talk to you. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what your background is. And given what I know about your background and some interviews I've heard you on, it wasn't likely that you were necessarily going to get into social issues like critical theory. So maybe you could tell the journey there. Sure. I became a Christian in graduate school. And so you're right. My main focus for probably the first 10 years of my Christian life was apologetics, talking to my colleagues in grad school at postdoc who were scientists about Christianity, about the gospel. I was not at all concerned or interested in politics or culture or the culture wars. I'm still not super interested in politics. Mm. And I only got involved in this topic around 2015. That's around the time that Black Lives Matter took off. And I providentially met my collaborator, Dr. Pat Sawyer, who has a PhD in education and cultural studies and does critical theory professionally as his career. And we began talking and I raised these concerns, like I'm seeing some of these ideas you're talking about cropping up in evangelical circles. I'm seeing evangelical Christians using this language, and it's weird. And Pat was just flummoxed because he got into this field to share the gospel with his super progressive, woke, atheist colleagues. He said, there's no way that Christians could be embracing these ideas. They're mm. so patently false and unbiblical. So he went back and forth, and he came to agree in the end that, yeah, actually, we were seeing the beginnings of this woke movement reaching its tentacles into evangelicalism. And as I think we all recognize now, it's much worse than it was even five years ago. There are books published now, pressing mm -hmm. these ideas onto Christianity, onto evangelicals, onto the culture. Yep. And so we really need to be able to combat them. Do you have any recollection of what some of the first books or people that were involved in this that sort of you were like, whoa, they're into this? Or Yeah, I think some of the first Christians who I saw saying odd things were people like Jamar Tisby. Mm, and it's okay. interesting, a lot of these people had been on trajectories. Ten years ago, they were saying orthodox things. They were orthodox conservative evangelicals. But as they embraced these ideas, what I try to argue in my talks, in my writing, is that these ideas will put you on a trajectory. You don't begin by saying things like, we're going to worship the sacred black feminine. You don't begin by saying that. <laughs> you begin by saying, I'm an orthodox, reformed, evangelical Christian, whatever. You know, I went to these seminaries and I'm writing for high-respected evangelical outlets. 
And I'm just trying to guess to think rightly about justice issues. We all care about justice. Mm -hmm. Jesus cared about justice. The Old Testament talks about justice. So I want us to remove this blind spot from evangelical American theology and begin talking like that. And those words are all fine. Words like justice are biblical. Words like oppression are biblical. But then the way that they were talking about these issues, I began to worry that they're bringing in these non-biblical definitions of these words Mm -hmm. and these unbiblical ideas that sure enough were eroding more and more of their doctrine. And as we saw over the last, say, five to 10 years is that people were on this downgrade and some of them have really gone all the way. Mm. The best example that I, I know of this is Dr. Christina Cleveland, who in 2015, 2016, she was writing for Christianity Today. She was giving talks at crew, talks at InterVarsity. She was a major evangelical speaker and influencer at the forefront of racial reconciliation. And that was literally six years ago. And this year, she came out with a book called God is a Black Woman. And you wouldn't believe it. You read some of the quotes from this book. Wow. I'm actually writing a book right now with Pat. So I'm just surrounded by every possible <laughs> version of critical theory and critical theory. Oh, They're just floating around my desk. My wife's going crazy, but I have her book somewhere behind me. But it is just, she's no longer a Christian. She now worships the sacred black feminine and just thinks that Christianity, Orthodox Christianity is just deeply racist, paternalistic, patriarchal, oppressive, heterosexist, transphobic, etc. The ideas that she's embraced will lead you there. Mm-hmm. Now, not everyone's gone that far, but that's the logical endpoint of those ideas. Yeah, so this in some ways maybe is more of an extension of your apologetics because it is sort of defending the faith in a completely different way because same as you, I've often wondered where, I guess you, you say your conversation with Pat, it's like, well, how are Christians actually believing some of this stuff? And I think a lot of conservative Christians especially are kind of like, how would a Christian actually believe some of these sort of radical woke things? Like that's something that maybe the secular left can embrace and we can kind of wrap our heads around that, but why would a Jesus follower do that? When I was in seminary, the emergent church was kind of a thing. And it was very much some of the theological books that we had to read, that I had to read, talked about liberation, talked about listening to diverse voices and those kinds of things. And so when critical theory came on the scene a little bit more popularly in Christianity in the last five years, it didn't surprise me that some of these people were embracing that because I was able to sort of observe some of the underlying things, which I want to talk to you about here in a little bit because we're probably not going to have a conversation about this without talking about Marx, Mm -hmm. at least in some regard. But before we move on, maybe it's important for us to know what is critical theory and what have you come across that is defining it? I know sometimes people say, well, for critical race theory, people are like, well, no one can define it, either people who are against it or people for it. But critical theory actually has a little bit more, I guess, a longer tenure as a philosophy or as a discipline. So what is critical theory? And yeah, we'll start there. So critical theory, the term was introduced by Max Horkheimer in an essay in 1937. He was a Marxist, and he and his fellow sociologists and philosophers were part of a group called the Frankfurt School, worked in Germany, and later moved to the U.S. and Colombia. But he coined the term critical theory, and they were interested in applying Karl Marx's ideas more broadly than just economics. Marx believed, of course, that you have oppressed people, the poor, Mm -hmm. the working class, and they were oppressed by the ruling class, the people that own the means of production, and we had to have a communist revolution 
so the government could take control of property and the means of production, and that would liberate the working class, the proletariat, from the oppression of the ruling class. And now, he was totally focused on economy, and he believed that culture was simply a byproduct of the economy. And so once you had this revolution where you displaced, where you seized the means of production, then culture and religion, ideology, all of those would just naturally change as a result of this communist revolution. That was Marx's idea. He called it the base and the superstructure. And so you change the base, change the economy, and you change the superstructure, all the things on top of that culture, religion, ideology, etc. Well, the Frankfurt School in the 1930s, people like Horkheimer, Adorno, Marcuse, Benjamin, these people said, no, wait a minute, he's got it a little bit wrong. The culture also influences the economy and resources. So people, and then Antonio Gramsci, another figure who's famous, are basically saying, no, actually, the ideas are not just totally dependent on economics, but actually the ideas influence how we think about economic arrangements, how we think about resources. So what Gramsci said, for example, is he believed that the reason that the workers don't revolt, why don't the workers just rise up and throw off their chains and have this glorious communist utopia? And Gramsci said, look, the problem is what's happened is the ruling class, the elites, the property owners, they have basically brainwashed the working class to consent to their own oppression. So the average worker thinks that the current arrangements, that he's a worker and he's poor, and but he thinks that's natural and good. Maybe God ordained, he believes in things like meritocracy or other things that basically prevent him, these ideas prevent him from envisioning liberation. He thinks it's good and natural that he's oppressed. He doesn't even realize he's oppressed. So what Gramsci thought and Horkheimer and people in the Frankfurt School realized was that to really free, to really achieve a communist utopia, you had to undermine these ideas. You had to change the culture, which would then wake people up so they could realize they were being oppressed and then work towards their liberation. Now, that was the 30s, right? So even that was 90 years ago. So since then, critical theory has become this umbrella category. It spawned entire disciplines like critical race theory, critical pedagogy, feminist theory, intersectional feminism, queer theory. These are all under the heading, this broad heading of critical theory or critical social theories. And all of them are trying to understand how ideas oppress various groups and how ideas work to reinforce social hierarchies. There is always a ruling class, an oppressor class, there's always a subordinate or marginalized or oppressed class, but that can be along lines of either race or gender or sexuality or physical ability or religion or colonial status. So the big picture is all of these critical social theories are trying to understand how power works through ideas to create what they call the social binary of oppressors and oppressed. How does postmodernism play into that? Because like I mentioned, when I was going to seminary, we were talking about the emerging church, and it was very much about postmodernity and postmodernism. And there was a, what I thought was a key insight to postmodernism is that language can be used to dominate and be mm -hmm. used to sort of manipulate others into either believing certain things or to sort of structure the way people thought about themselves, the way they thought about the relationships. And I don't think I wholly reject that, but this movement, the postmodern movement, was beginning roughly parallel with what you just described what sort of overlap was going on there and how much influence there is? Because I've heard a lot of disparate 
stories as to like how postmodern is critical theory versus like, is there a postmodern critical theory? Is there just a, a liberal critical theory? All those things. That's a very good question. These are all very fluid, nebulous knowledge areas, right? There's a lot of cross-pollination. So you pick up today, a critical theorist today, who's writing and saying, and queer theory is heavily influenced by people like Foucault and Derrida. I'm reading Judith Butler right now. So she will be very overtly postmodern. Whereas more traditional, say, critical race theory is more modernist. In fact, some of it's more Marxist explicitly. And Marx was a modernist. Marx believed in things like their, you know, he's a, people talk about scientific Marxism, the idea that these are just observable phenomenon. They're based on good mm. reasoning. There is objective truth. So what happened was this critical movement, which is sort of Marxist and the postmodern movement from the 60s and 70s, people like Foucault and Derrida, they really merged <laughs> to create the sort of wokeness we see today. And actually, the best book to trace this convergence is Pluckrose and Lindsay's book, Cynical Theories. So they go back and look at the postmodern roots of wokeness today. It's one stream of intellectual thought that empties into modern wokeness. But the other stream of thought comes from this Marxist Frankfurt School critical theory. They, and around the 90s is when, according to Pluckrose and Lindsay, and I think that's actually right, in the 90s is when those two streams merged into what you see today. Actually, I just read it, and Judith Butler is a very well-known queer theorist in her book, Gender Trouble, actually says explicitly that around the 90s is when these two movements sort of merged and produced what you see today. Another source is Maureen Adams' books, Readings for Diversity and Social Justice and Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice. She does the same thing. Around 2000, she's writing and says, yeah, 10 years ago is when these fields really just took off because there was this influx of postmodern thought converging with this neo-Marxist thought. So yeah, it's very complicated, basically. No, it is. And it's funny that I picked up on the fact that you said even Judith Butler said that it started in the 90s. And that sort of pattern of declaration for people like you and me is really important because here's the phenomenon that we sort of deal with. Six, eight months ago, I looked up James Lindsay because I didn't know entirely who he was. I didn't realize that he was part of the grievance studies, even though I knew that that had happened. Hmm. And I looked him up and one of the first articles that came up was James Lindsay is wrong about critical race theory. Yeah. So there's this article at some Substack, I think. And this guy is telling us that what James Lindsay is saying about critical race theory, and he's quoting things. So I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm reading what he says, James Lindsay says about, I'm pretty sure it's the Stefanczyk and Delgado book. And he's just explaining to me why James Lindsay is wrong about his interpretation of critical race theory. And I'm like, okay, well, let me go read this for myself. And I'm looking yeah, right. at this and I'm like, no, they're literally saying this. They they're say literally saying that race is a normal feature of, or they're literally, I'm like, how does anybody just read this and say, no, that's not what they're saying? So like I said, I'm working on a book right now with Dr. Pat Sawyer, and we're hoping it is going to be the definitive response to these issues, definitive. I just finished putting in footnotes. I currently have over 500 footnotes. Maybe it'll double when Pat puts his in. The bottom line is we let the primary sources speak. We don't tell you what people say. We just quote them. Like here's three paragraphs from Crenshaw. Here's a paragraph from Matsuda. Here's a paragraph from Kendi. Just read what yeah. they say and don't take our word for it. And so what I found it shockingly, I've been really depressed to see a lot of Christians just sort of don't know better because they're like, yeah, we don't know who to believe because so-and-so has a PhD and they say it's fine, but you you have a PhD, but it's in theoretical chemistry, so we can't really trust you. <laughs> and so I get that. You don't know who to trust. 
But that's why I really want to simply point to the primary sources, to the critical race theorists themselves, who will say, here's what we believe. And what's really frustrating in this respect also is that if you get someone like, here's a great example, Robin D'Angelo. If you think about wokeness, there are two names that come up, Robin D'Angelo and Ibram X. Kendi. These are like mainstream, the wokest of the woke, everyone's reading them. And the question, of course, is, are they critical race theorists? Everyone's asking, well, are they critical race theorists? So there's an interview that Robin D'Angelo gave to CNN, I think it was last year, and they ask her, are you doing critical race? I should pull up the quote here. And she says, well, you know, she says, technically, critical race theory is a legal field. And so technically, I am not doing legal theory. And so Mm. something totally... and here's the thing. It's just a bunch of conservatives who are frightened by confronting racial history. And okay, <laughs> She gives this kind of nebulous answer, but yeah. she basically says, no, 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 no. It's just a legal field. Here's the thing. Her website, robindangelo.com, the title on her website is Robin D'Angelo PhD, and the subtitle is Critical Race and Social Justice Education. <laughs> that has been the subtitle on her website for like the last four years. So here she is on CNN saying, well, you know, it's just a legal field. Oh, well, yeah, I'm doing this, but I'm doing critical race education. (laughs) So I'm like, if you read her work, I've read, I think, four of her books, and I've read, what does it mean to be white? I've read, is everyone really equal? I've read White Virgility, read a bunch of her articles. There is not a doubt in my mind that she is doing critical race theory. Now, she might call it critical racial education, but all of the ideas are there. It's frankly, very disingenuous for her to say, well, you know, I get frustrated when people play that game. Just say, well, here are the ideas I espouse. And sure enough, they line up with all of the basic commitments of critical race theory. And so what I just say is, look, she is doing critical race theory, even if she disclaims the label critical race theorist. Well, I'm going to do what you just did a few minutes ago and say, well, even... Delgado and Stefanczyk say in their definition of critical race theory is that it's a group of academics and activists. Yes. And so it's like, by definition of the people who were there when they formed the movement are saying that there's an activist element to this. In their book, and this is a book everyone reads, is CRT and Introduction by Delgado and Stefanczyk, 2017. It's the third edition. But in that book, the introduction by Harris, it boasts that CRT was once a legal field and now it's being read by sociologists, theologians, healthcare workers, political science. So it is going everywhere. And in fact, in 2017, Delgado and Stefanczyk say that one possibility that CRT will become, quote, new civil rights orthodoxy. So it's like in the waters that we just take it for granted. Everybody just thinks about race in these terms and they actually say, and maybe this is already happening. So the point is here, the idea that it's this box, this hermetically sealed discipline that just stuck somewhere in the ivory tower that no one's doing except for a few random grad students is just on their own account, completely false. And it bugs me no end when I'll see Christians repeating this claim that it's just a legal discipline, it's just a legal theory, it's just taught in grad school. Crenshaw had a summer school this year that had a track on critical race theory in K through 12 education. The whole track on this summer school that she ran was about how K through 12 teachers can use the ideas to educate students in K through 12 classrooms. And you have people still insisting that it's just not in public schools, not in K through 12, it's just a grad school thing. Mm. It's like, I'm pulling my hair, I don't, yeah, I'm pulling my hair out. 
Yeah, no, I hear you. It's pretty crazy how they sort of jump back and forth between what they say and how they're doing things. And it makes you question whether or not what you're seeing is what you're seeing before your eyes. It makes you wonder like, well, am I really catching this? Or is there something that I'm missing? You and I have been jumping back and forth here in the last few minutes with critical race theory, because we talked about that book, and critical theory. Mm -hmm. Do you want to spell out maybe what the difference between critical theory and critical race theory is? Okay, so zeroth order approximation as a critical theory is now the umbrella term. Critical theory mm -hmm. can refer to just the Frankfurt School working in the 30s and 40s in Germany and the US. So that's a capital C, capital T critical theory is the Frankfurt School. But lowercase critical theory is now this umbrella term that encompasses all these different theories, which include critical pedagogy, queer theory, critical race theory, post-colonial studies, intersectional feminism. So those are all different critical social theories. And one of those is critical race theory. And the basic unifying theme is that all critical theories, they're all activists. They all want to change things. They all want to get to produce justice. They're not just there to describe reality. They're there to fix reality. So they're all explicitly activists in the orientation. They're all trying to understand how power operates to create social hierarchies. And they all recognize the validity of lived experience for discerning oppression, various oppressions and injustices. These are all sort of things that are common to all critical theories. And then critical race theory zooms in on race in particular. And it did grow out of legal studies in the U.S. It grew out of the critical legal tradition in the U.S. And then around 1989, early 90s is when critical race theory as a discipline formed around the core people like Kimberly Crenshaw, Murray Matsuda, Neil Gotanda. Derek Bell was kind of a godfather figure. Mm -hmm. He was the first black tenured professor of law at Harvard. Anyway. That's just very broadly, the umbrella term is critical theory, and one of those critical theories is critical race theory. Hi, everyone. This is Norman Horn. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out the others in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as my own Faith Seeking Freedom podcast, where I take listener-submitted questions about liberty and give brief but engaging answers that you can use and share. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to bringing you content that you will love to learn from, and we appreciate your support. Now let's get back to the show, and I hope you check out the FSF podcast soon. What's your take on James Lindsay's connection to neo-Marxism for all of this? In my estimation, it seems like he's making connections with Marxist and neo-Marxist movements that seem to be very strong. And yet, I've also heard you say that it's probably not really helpful for us to call this cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism or whatever. So I wanted to get your take on the connection between critical theory, Marxism, and maybe even give some advice on how we can talk about it as Christians. So I don't use the term cultural Marxism simply because it has been used by actual neo-Nazi groups in the past. And so I'm like, look, it's just, it's, if you use that term, people will say, oh, you're a neo-Nazi. I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> now, even though you can document its use going back 50 years, Scholars were using the term cultural Marxism to refer to basically neo-Marxism, the new left. So it's not just a neo-Nazi term. I'm just saying it has been used by those guys, and so I don't use it. Now, here's why I say don't refer to critical theory today just as Marxism. And the reason is because, remember, Marx thought that the base produced the superstructure. So the base was the economy, and economic arrangements produced culture. It was one way. You have certain economy, you get certain ideas. You have a certain economy, you get certain religious ideas, you get certain social arrangements, you get certain culture. So that was his idea. Then people like Gramsci more or less flipped them upside down. I'd argue that today, 
people like D'Angelo, it's almost the inverse. They believe everything is ideas and discourses and language. And ideas and discourses and language, that's what produces a certain economy, a certain resource distribution, things like that. So if you claim that what, say, D'Angelo is doing is just Marxism, it's almost exactly backwards. <laughs> They're both concerned with things like justice and oppression, but Marx said, look, from the economic arrangements flows all these ideas, and D'Angelo are saying, no, from the ideas and discourses flows everything, including economy, culture, or other things. So if people are going to criticize you, it gives them an easy out. They can say, you're totally misunderstanding Marxism. It's completely different. And there's some validity in what they're saying. So what I tend to say is, look, it's coming out of the Marxist stream of thought, which is also very broad. And more specifically, the neo-Marxism of people like Gramsci and people like the Frankfurt School, that does admit that ideas and culture matter in terms of producing economic mm. injustice. The bottom line is it's complicated. So I just say, I use the term contemporary critical theory. No one knows the right term to use. Literally, even the theorists themselves use all kinds of different terminology. <laughs> I tend to say it's also a way for them to avoid responsibility. You're like, well, I don't like critical theory. They're like, we're not doing critical theory. We're doing critical race theory. Why well, don't like critical race theory? Why am I doing critical race theory? I'm doing critical racial education. Why well, don't like critical racial education? Well, I'm not doing that. I'm doing anti-racism. So they have all these different labels they're using. And what I tell Christians, focus on the ideas. Because the way to stop this merry-go-round is to say, this is the idea that's out there, and I reject it for these biblical reasons. Then force them to defend that idea regardless of the label they slap on it. Make yeah. them say, this idea is true and defend it. Or say, yeah, you're right, it's unbiblical. But don't play this game, the name game. It never ends well. Yeah, and that seems like it's a pretty common thing. I mean, you were on the Unbelievable podcast back in 2020. I think it was during the pandemic. I think a lot of people are still at home. And I think you were talking to a guy named Razul, who mm. is a pastor in New York. And he kind of said this, if I'm remembering, I don't think I'm exactly quoting, but he was talking about, we're just trying to talk about racial oppression. And Neil, you just want to talk about epistemology. Right. And it seems like there are a lot of Christians, and I want to be as charitable as possible. This is one of the reasons I really liked some of the work that I've already read of yours, is that you make a very overt and loving charitable attempt to understand people where they are. Mm. And it seems like there's a lot of Christians that are out there that are just like, well, I just care about racial oppression. I just care that churches are making sure that they're treating those on the margins really well and you know that we're doing justice. And they sort of back away from the charge that they're doing something that is sort of in contradiction with their Christian faith. Because in their minds, they're doing the, uh, was it Luke 4, where Jesus talks about, I came to, or Luke 2, no, I guess it'd be Luke 4. He's like, I came to preach good news to the poor. They're like, I'm just following Jesus and dealing with those on the margin. So I don't know where my question is in all that. You can probably just respond to the comments is that's what people seem to be doing. Right. I do think that in my talks and in our book, I'm going to try to say, hey, we're not here to rain on your parade in terms of we're saying, yes, we should stand up against racism. We talk about racial discrimination today, the persistence of racial injustice today. These things do exist. There are studies. Not to cite lived experience, you can cite actual studies being done by sociologists showing there, yes, there are racial discriminations happen in hiring, say. Yeah, you don't have to appeal against lived experience. You can appeal to studies and objective evidence. But that's the problem, is that 
there are certain ideas that we can't allow to have a foot in the door because they will take you much further than you want to go. So take the idea of lived experience. Take the idea that, hey, I don't need to see your studies and your empirical evidence. I have lived depression or I have a friend who's lived depression and I can just mm-hmm. trust what they're telling me. And in fact, as a white, cis, straight male, I need you to defer to the lived experience of the marginalized and just trust them and decenter myself as a cis white male. Okay, all of that language, it sounds, I guess, trendy, but it's very dangerous. Why? Well, critical theory today would say, yes, blacks and people of color, they're oppressed. You should lift up their voices and valorize their lived experience. Yes, you know who else is oppressed is women. Women are oppressed group. They're oppressed by the patriarchy. You need to center their experiences. You know who else is oppressed? LGBTQ people, they're oppressed by heterosexism, these norms and values that elevate heterosexuality over and against other sexual minorities and expressions of sexuality. They're oppressed by heterosexism. You know, who else is oppressed? Other religions, they're oppressed when you do things like evangelize and tell them their religion is false. That's oppressive. You have this hegemonic system with Christian hegemony that imposes your values on them and you need to repent of that. No, wait a minute, what's happened? We went from saying we have to just acknowledge the experience and defer to it and not challenge it. Once you make that claim, if you're consistent, you can't just apply it to one person or to one issue. You have to apply it to all these issues. And in fact, critical race theory, one of the core defining elements of critical race theory is this recognition that you cannot separate issues of racism, classism, sexism, heterosexism, transphobia, ableism, all these different isms They're all interlocking systems of oppression. Therefore, you cannot just apply these quote-unquote tools to race. You must apply it, according to critical race theorists, to all these other identity factors. And once we do that, we're going to be in real trouble in terms of our theology. And let alone the fact that even in terms of race, you can't just defer to people's lived experience because we can interpret our experiences wrongly. And one one of the things that Pat does professionally is he looks at how white power movements radicalize and recruit new members. And what he's found is that these white supremacist neo-Nazi groups will go to these young, disaffected white men and they'll say to you, have you ever been demeaned for your ethnicity? Do people ever tell you to shut up because you're a terrible, oppressive white male? And you didn't do anything. You can't change who you are. You were born that way. And how? Why are they despising you? It's not right. We understand. In fact, we can show you a worldview that explains why these people despise you. They're appealing to the young white male's lived experience and giving him poison, these poisonous Mm. ideas. So we cannot valorize lived experience. We have to test our lived experience against scripture and say, is it true against objective evidence and say, am I interpreting my experience rightly? Otherwise, you're going to end up with a lot of really dangerous ideas sneaking into the church. Have you challenged directly people who talk about lived experience that way? And in what you just said, it's like, well, our lived experiences can be wrong. I mean, in efforts to be charitable, I can't imagine that the academic critical race theorists and the people who insist upon giving lived experience preferential epistemology, I can't imagine that they don't know this, that they don't realize that our lived experience, that our experience and interpretation of what happened to us, forget the things like certain types of really acute traumas, but like just the general experience of being female or black or whatever minority you might want to pick, the experience can be wrong or your interpretation of it. So what do they say? Or maybe, I don't know, have you encountered that interaction in such a way where that's challenged? Oh, yeah. What do they say? 
So this is the thing. People don't realize this is a coherent worldview. So I, I talked to some people sort of that are naively thinking there's some gotcha question out there. It'll just blow them away. It'll just show instantly all this is the house of cards. And my point is, guys, this is like decades old. They've thought through these issues carefully and it's wrong, but it's coherent. So here's their answer. Baked into their whole way of thinking is this deep asymmetry. What they will say is there are always oppressors and oppressed. There's always an oppressor group and oppressed group. And in their view, these subordinate groups, whether it's people of color or women or LGBTQ people or disabled people, these marginalized groups, they have what's called a double consciousness because they have to understand the perspective of the oppressor, of whites, of men, of straight people, They have because they live in that world. We're all brainwashed into these systems of patriarchy, and white supremacy and ableism and heterosexism. So the minoritized person, the marginalized person has to understand that way of thinking but they also have their own knowledge that comes from their lived experience as a person of color or a woman. So they have a double consciousness. And that gives them special insight into reality that a white person or a man or a straight person cannot share, right? Because they're seeing the world from two lenses and the person of color or the one can achieve what's called a liberatory or a critical consciousness. They wake up to the reality of their oppression and now, basically, they're like a person you can see. And if you're a part of an oppressor group, you're like a blind man. And in fact, there are a lot of Christian books out there, evangelical books, that will actually use that metaphor and talk about how white people are blind, that white people have to be healed from their blindness and have to be led by the hand and taught about things like race because whites are just blind by their social location. Okay, so once... Well, hence the word woke. That they wake up to their yeah, right. experience of pressure. So that's their answer. They would say, look, lived experience can be misinterpreted, but not when it's given by someone with a liberatory consciousness, which really can only happen when you're part of an oppressed group. And you, as a white, straight male, you how dare you challenge? It's like, you know, if I were actually physically blind, I can't go around being like, well, you can't tell me what to do. They're like, well, I can see. Of course I can tell you what to do. Then you're like, well, my lived experience... As a blind person, you can't see the reality. I can. So mm. let me take you by the hand and explain to you how society really works, how oppression really works. So that's their answer. You'll never hear them asking a white man, well, what's your lived experience? They don't care because your lived experience is one of privilege and oppressiveness and internalized racism and white supremacy. And so your lived experience is always going to be interpreted wrongly. Well, wait a minute. But what about the lived experience of, say, black conservatives. There are plenty of black conservatives out there who reject all these ideas or female conservatives, right? What do you do with them? Ah, well, see, they have not achieved a liberatory consciousness. In fact, they have internalized oppression. It's another term that's used, internalized yeah. misogyny, internalized whiteness. So the unwoke person of color or unwoke woman or unwoke LGBTQ person, they are still enacting internalized homophobia or internalized misogyny. And so you can't really trust their lived experience either. You can only trust the lived experience of people with critical gods or their white progressive allies. <laughs> That's the <laughs> irony is that you can trust white males if they are allies. You can trust them to correctly interpret the experiences of <laughs> the marginalized groups because they have done the work and done the reading. They're sitting in solidarity with the oppressed. Man, I'm just like shaking my head here. It's just like, this is mind-numbing on the one hand. On the other hand, it's very enlightening because you do get to sort of wake up to the way in which people think. And 
you're right. It's internally coherent, mm. even if it's reality incoherent <laughs> to some extent. I mean, I don't know. I'm a white guy, so how am I supposed uh, to? How do you know? Right? Well, that's okay. I'm half Indian, so I can I can <laughs> I can grant you a dispensation. Well, right. It's like who is it? A uh, Gad Sad and um. No, I guess it wouldn't be Douglas Murray because he's a white male, but he's but he's he's gay, so he yeah, has so a little he, bit of. Well, he know. sort of cleverly plays on the fact that at least I got this one thing that yeah. these people can say that I'm like. I mean, I've had one, two, three conversations about this topic so far on this program on this show, and I've gotten several comments on why don't you have somebody who's more in favor of this. <laughs> and part of it is I don't, first of all, I don't have to be fair and balanced and I can choose to do whatever I want on my show and I want to equip Christians to promote the message of liberty. I don't think critical race theory does that, critical theory. And I do want to get to some of the things that you think that we can learn as Christians from critical theory, which we'll get mm-hmm. to here in just a moment. But it's been a real pain to sort of think through, all right, well, who am I going to invite on to talk about this? Well, probably going to have to invite a black guy or a black woman to talk about these issues. And like, there's not much I can say to challenge them. I just got to like let them talk and like I just feel like I would be at some sort of a disadvantage. And there's a place for just like letting somebody talk, a minority, a marginalized person. I mean, I again referring back to my seminary years, I think there's a I think there's a legit place for letting alternative voices sort of come to the table mm-hmm. as sort of a metaphor, but it is a tough thing to sort of talk about this as a white male. I actually humorously was like, all right, I wonder if there's any way that I could claim marginalized status. I'm like, I'm adopted. So I looked up critical adoption studies just to be Mm. like, I wonder if this exists. It exists. Yeah. And there was a paper on it. I read the abstract. That was about all I got because I was like, well, I wasn't really serious about claiming this as oppressive status. But it's just like anybody can come up with some sort of lived experience that puts them in a minority. But I guess unless if you're white, you can't pick any of those. Anyway, You've been charitable toward critical theory in certain small ways and in certain, I think, important ways. And it's one of the reasons that I like what you were writing. What is it that Christians can actually say, okay, critical theory, it sounds based on everything we just said, just it's a big load, I should say, of a lot of information, but there can't be 0% that we can get from it. And I think you've identified some of those things. So I want to give you opportunity to share those. Sure. I mean, there are a lot of ideas. What I like to say is that critical theorists make true claims. And if they didn't make any true claims at all, then no one would believe there are lies, right? The whole point of lies is that they have to sense some plausibility to them, some kernel of truth. And so a lot of these critical social theories, they contain elements of truth. And I do talk about them in my talks. One obvious one is this idea of hegemonic power. Hegemonic power means this idea that the ruling class imposes their norms and values on culture in ways that seem to us natural. We take these values for granted as natural and good and normal, but they're really just the values that justify the ruling class's power. That's a real, actually, phenomenon. And I can show you how. Here's one example. Look at the power of Hollywood and Madison Avenue to shape our norms around sexuality and gender. That's hegemonic power in action. The fact mm. that as a society, our values around sexuality, say, or beauty standards, are completely shaped by whatever some advertiser says they are. This year, yeah, that's hegemonic power in action. The fact that as Christians, we have to work so hard to raise our children to have different standards of sexuality and different standards of beauty than what they're being just brainwashed with 24-7 in every advertisement, every movie, every song. That's hegemonic power. That's a real phenomenon being wielded by Hollywood Madison Avenue. 
Another example would be the idea of systemic injustice that can exist. I think we can so individualize sin that we think it's impossible for sin to be embedded in systems. Well, that's not true. Things like chattel slavery in the U.S. were not merely about individual actors. They were about that. But they were also about laws that shaped people's consciences. People didn't even know they were doing wrong. Take abortion, right? Today, abortion is a way in which the law is systemically unjust. And so as Christians, we work to both change individual people's hearts. We also work to undo unjust laws. It's not neither or, it's both and. So critical theorists correctly identify the fact that systems can be unjust and that we have to work, and Christians can say, yeah, that's true. We can work both for individual justice and for societal don't call it social justice, call it societal justice. Mm-hmm. We can do that. I mean, and this should be common sense, right? We know Christians in the past, and even today, have been activists when we realize there really is actual unbiblical injustice being perpetrated by our government, being perpetrated by companies, by organizations, by schools. That's another just common thing. What about critical race theory? Critical race theorists, believe it or not, are emphatic that race is a social construct. They're right. There is one race, the human race, Acts 17, or from one man, God created all men. So now they would understand that a little bit differently, but the bottom line is that as Christians, we say, you know what? We're just human. And that these categories of black and white and Asian, those are social constructs. How do I know? I know because if you go to Asia, there are like three or four billion people in Asia. The idea that, oh, these are all Asians. Give me a break, guys. They're like, 50 countries and like a thousand people groups with a thousand different languages, often at war with one another. In Asian, we're like, oh, Asian American. That's a human category that we've invented. If you go to some other country like Brazil, they have totally different categories. So these buckets of Asian, black, white, I mean, black would encompass people from all of Africa, the Caribbean, people that have lived their entire life in Europe and <laughs> labeled black. It's this silly category based on basically skin color and maybe ancestry but it doesn't tell you much about the person. Anyway, my point is that there are these isolated ideas that are valid and we can affirm that or the critical race theory, the idea that racial injustice happens today. I can show you studies where things like cops are more likely to pull over black drivers than white drivers. Even when you control for everything else, you control for all these different factors, cops are slot tremendously, but they're more likely to pull over black drivers than white drivers. Hiring studies, Whites get more callbacks to interviews than blacks with the same resume, same credentials, but just the only thing you vary is the race and it makes a major difference in terms of interview callbacks. So things like that, those are real phenomena. Now, critical race theory interprets those phenomena wrongly, but they are real phenomena. Do you think that there is simply an error in identifying the problem or is it just a matter of solutions? Like when I read Delgado and Stefanczyk's book, I read through it thinking, And actually, let me step back for a second. The reason I even was looking into critical race theory was because I saw a whole bunch of Republicans and conservatives go crazy over this thing Mm. that they're just making the latest boogeyman. And as they are wont to do, I'm like, okay, they're probably going overboard. Yeah, let me go see what this is. And then I'm like, oh, well, they're not quite as overboard as I thought. Mm. But I'm like, all right, let me give these people a chance. So I read the book and I'm like, Well, these don't seem that out of, like, they're identifying, like you just said, injustices in police, judicial decisions that are impartial, and that some of these can be encoded into law 
it makes it such that like a judge would be more likely to let off a white person than a black person or whatever the case may be. But is it really just like a matter of their solutions or just like, let's do affirmative action and some of these other things? Or do you think, well, what do you think about that? No, I've heard people say that like, well, they get the solution they're wrong, but they get the problems right. And I would say no. Because, for example, if you're like, well, see, the problem they get right is racism. Well, not exactly, because they've redefined the word racism. Right. So to them, racism, this is simplistic, but racism basically means racial disparities. When there are racial disparities, the presumption that critical race theory makes is that there is racism that causes those disparities. And for many reasons, that just is not true. And an obvious one, obvious one, is that 75% of NBA players are black. But no one thinks there's some pro-black discrimination going on there. <laughs> That's just not what it is. So, and there are other examples. I mean, Asians are wildly... Oh, I could construe that as actually racist, Neil. Because in our society, black people are relegated to only right. entertainment. And yes. therefore, you know, that's know like I literally had somebody, this was back when I was like a very strong conservative. I said something about like Oprah being wealthy. And one of my leftist friends was kind of like, well, it's the entertainment industry. That doesn't count. <laughs> okay. I mean, I didn't understand it at first. And I kind of got it a little bit later as to why he sort of felt that way. Anyway, I'll let you continue. Yeah, and that's a problem that's sort of like unfalsifiable because you're like, well, all disparities are discrimination. And it's like, well, what about 300 years ago? That was what caused discrimination this thing today. It's like, well, it's unfalsifiable. And actually, it's one of the arguments against people like Derek Bell's Indian's Convergence Theory. Anyway, here's another example. It's harder to refute. Asians are wildly overrepresented in the Ivy Leagues. They just are. And actually, there's a Supreme Court case right now going on mm-hmm. that argues that affirmative action is not just subtly, but explicitly discriminating against Asians in admissions. Mm-hmm. And it is, the data they show is just shocking. It is really horrifically, it seems very biased that admissions officers are literally basically just downgrading Asian applicants because they're Asian in order to admit other racial groups. It might rival the Twitter files as the scandal of the year, right? Yeah, right, yeah. (laughs) We'll see what the Supreme Court decides. But the point is, the fact is, Asians are wildly overrepresented in medical schools, in the Ivy Leagues, in elite universities, Jewish people, same thing. And is that a result of pro-Asian or anti-white? or No, it's no. And it's just because... And their studies, there actually are surveys that show that Asian kids study like twice on average, averages, but it, on average, Asians study way more than whites or blacks or Hispanics. So is it any wonder that they tend to do better in school? Now, again, that's a broad generalization, but we're dealing with groups yeah. here. We're not looking at individuals. The point is that this whole theory that disparities equal discrimination is just not true. And so the point is, when you say, well, critical race theory identifies the problems but offers bad solutions, I'm saying, no, it gets the problems wrong too. Often by redefining words like racism and white supremacy and whiteness and oppression, and they redefine all those words and therefore they misidentify the problem and the solution. So I just didn't say it's not as simple as saying, oh yeah, we can get behind your problems. Mm-hmm. Not really. <laughs> I can't even do that. Yeah, yeah. I actually want to ask you about the interest convergence theory. You mentioned that briefly and in my being a little sick this week and preparing for this, I forgot to write down everything that I wanted to talk to you about. But that was one of them. I felt like when I read about interest convergence theory, I felt like that was not saying anything new. Mm. Does that make sense to you? Well, like people do things because it's in their interest. Like the specific example a lot of people give, I think, is that civil rights was done by white pro-state men because they didn't want to look bad to Soviet Russia. Right. It was kind of like the thing. And I'm like, Okay, like I'm not surprised by that. That doesn't 
phase me very much. It doesn't seem like it's just compelling new theory. Or am well, I simplifying it too much there? It's a couple of things. One is that in Derek Bell's formulation, it was really only one way because in his view, whites basically controlled everything. And so in his convergence, there's Derek Bell's theory. And it's basically said that civil rights progress is only made, is only possible, and it only happens when it benefits whites. It's in their own interest. So whenever you see any kind of progress, civil rights progress, racial progress, that only happens when whites decide it's favorable to whites. Okay. They're not at all motivated by a desire to do justice. They're just like it's in white interests. Their interests converge with the interests of blacks. And that's why black progress is made. Okay, so one, it's only one way. He's not saying that every group is self-interested. He's saying whites, because they control everything, they're self-interested and they do. So I'm not saying he's saying whites are worse. I'm just saying that that only works Right, that's in the terms way he's of, analyzing yeah. it, yeah. But the other thing is that it's also unfalsifiable because, like you said, if you're cynical enough, you can always find crazy ways in which this somehow benefits the person doing it. So the example I use is, is it true that kids will sometimes behave in order to get rewards from their parents. Like sometimes my kids will do good things only to get more dessert. Only your kids. Yeah, right. Kids in general, they do that. Yeah, they do They do things out of self-interest to make them look good so that they will reap benefits from that. Okay. But if I approach my family life assuming that every time they do a good thing, it's only because it's in their interest, <laughs> I'm going to have a dysfunctional family. And my point is that if you view everything done by the quote-unquote white ruling class as only motivated by white self-interest. And you're not even consciously, but just it does the way that, I mean, he's sort of a materialist. He just believes things just happen without any agency. But if you believe that, it's not true, number one, because you can even be cynical and say, even when you do it out of a sense of right and wrong, you feel good about it. And that's your self-interest. It's like, well, mm. that's, is it true philosophically? I don't know. <laughs> but, the point is, it's a really bad way to view reality and to view other human beings. And again, yes, we are all sinners. But the main thing is this. It's very, when I said this one-sided, it's not like Derek Bell looking at his own heart and saying, I only do things out of self-interest. Or even a white person. He's talking about groups. But it's always applied to the other. They are mm, doing yeah, this okay. kind of self-interest. Again, it's very unhealthy and not the way the Bible would have us think about other individuals. Other groups, it's harder to say my favorite thing is that it just is unfalsifiable. You can always speculate about some deep, buried, super unconscious, subconscious motivation that every group had for doing this one thing. How can you disprove that? You can't disprove yeah. it. So that's a bigger objection. It's been raised in the past too by other legal theorists. Not just people who are sort of like on our side of this sort of debate. Oh, no. Originally, critical race theory in the 90s was being opposed by liberals primarily. Because the CRTs, their biggest enemies were not conservatives. Their biggest enemies were liberals because they are, as you read, critical race theory is overtly, explicitly opposed to incrementalism and things like the rule of law and things like objectivity and legal analysis. They reject those things. Maybe not rule of law, but they reject enlightenment liberalism. Yeah. They reject rationalism when it comes to how you interpret the law. They reject all of that stuff, which liberals, liberals were big on. They reject the yeah. idea that you can make incremental racial progress. You have to tear the system down. And they, uh, back in 1993, they're saying that we need fundamental social transformation. It can't be just slow and steady improvement. We have to tear all the bad stuff down and build a new system that works properly, which is pretty alarming, frankly, given 
the yep. track record of these groups, these radical groups in actually doing anything constructive. They can burn things down. They don't really build much. <laughs> well, they've been slowly eking their way into the education system and doing a whole lot of subtle damage. And now we're seeing the effects of college students that were born after the 90s now sort of like imbibing this as if it's just the way things are. It started to realize, I don't know, probably like in the last couple of months that when people say they have a degree in something, that I'm starting to question whether or not that's something I should care about. Because yeah. I'm like, oh, I have a degree in sociology. And so I must be an expert on this. So you have to listen to what I'm saying. And I'm like, yeah, but I know how you've been educated. And so I'm starting to kind of catch on to sort of the streams of thought that are happening there. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit to wrap this up. What is your... I don't want to call it an agenda, but what is your aim in writing all that you do? I mean, you have probably the largest personal website with book reviews on this topic that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. So for our listeners, if you have heard about a book that's on anything somewhat related to these topics, Neil has written a review on it, at least either just a short review with pros and cons or a lengthy review. I'll just throw out there also, Neil, I got sidetracked. This was not at all about this conversation, but I got sidetracked on your long review of Stephen Wolf's book on Christian nationalism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like it totally sidetracked me because I was like interested in what you had to say there. So people can listen to or read your review there. What is your general aim in what you're writing and what you're doing professionally in that area? I mean, my concern has always been for the church, not for the culture. The culture is going to do what it's going to do. I want to keep the church safe from these ideas. I think they're very dangerous. This interview is more about the negatives. You listen to some of my talks. I did one in Southeastern a few years ago. And I do try to be balanced and to really press the point that I'm not trying to give cover for racism. I reject it. I think you should too. I spend 10 minutes in that talk talking about our horrific racial history as a country, talking about racism today, why it still exists, why Christians should not shy away from denouncing it and addressing it. So we're going to have a whole chapter in our book on slavery and Jim Crow and the Black Codes. And so we're not trying to shut down conversations about race that need to happen. We're not trying to shut down conversations about sexual abuse or actual sexism in the church. That's not our goal. Our goal is to address specific ideas that are sneaking into the church under the guise of being about racism and sexism. And these ideas are just deeply, deeply, deeply wrong. And they will erode your theology inevitably, and you must reject them as Christians. And I try to say, you can come away from my talk and still be a libertarian and still be for open borders and still be a conservative. I'm not addressing whether we should have a minimum wage or there should be a $30 minimum wage or a tax structure. That's not my concern. My concern is just these ideas and how they will affect basic theology and worldview. My goal has always been to equip Christians not to stop thinking about these issues, but to think about them properly from a biblical perspective and rejecting these undoable ideas. Where can everybody find you online? What's your website? It is just shenviapologetics.com. If you Google Neil Shenvi, N-E-I-L-S-H-E-N-V-I, you'll find my website, and I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm just Neil Shenvi on Twitter. But then I'm the only Neil Shenvi in the world, I think. So you're, you're going to find me. <laughs> so even if we misspell your name in Google, you'll, you'll, probably, find, you'll probably... Shenvi is... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well... We'll be sure to link to some of those talks. I did intend to talk a little bit more about some of the positive things like you just mentioned there, but we'll let our audience go and watch you on your site and everywhere else you are. Neil, I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much, Doug. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.